as I came into the fourth season of this podcast, I knew I needed to do something about its major deficiency, musical creativity. So far, I've only interviewed one other composer or musician. This is not because of a dislike for music. I love just about every genre. Well, there's a few I could do without, but mostly I love it. It's really a deficiency in my own education and personal connections. Therefore, I went to my go-to person on all things musical, Dr. Ellie Jenkins, professor of music at Dalton State. See, she suggested several persons, and one of them was her musical colleague, Dr. Sam Baltzer of Rome, Georgia, and we'll be discussing his creativity and career on this session of Dialogues with Creators. Stay tuned. It is my honor and pleasure to host Dr. Sam Balser on this episode. Dr. Balser's credentials are many, so I'll start with some basics and then we'll let him tell more of his story. He recently retired from his professor of music teaching position at Georgia Highlands College after 44 years of teaching at the middle school, high school, and college university levels. So he's seen it all. He is the founder and artistic director and conductor of the Northwest Georgia Winds, the Clock Tower Jazz Ensemble, and the Chamber Players of the South. And he's also the composer and ranger of over 300 pieces, mostly for concert band. He and his wife, Janet, performed together for 15 years in the Kaylee Celtic Ensemble. And Sam continues to perform with the jazz combo on electric bass. He was the artistic director of the Rome Symphony Orchestra from 2015 to 2017 and has published articles in several leading professional journals. And since he's a doctor, he has a doctorate. His dissertation examined the musical creativity of children in the first through third grade. So I can't think of anybody more qualified to be on this Dialogues with Creators podcast. So after listening to these honors in this uh, professional biography, you know uh, why I have, we are honored to hear from Dr. Balzer on Dialogues with Creators. So I'd like to start, well, I, I want to get to how you got into these various positions, which are very wide ranging. But I want to start kind of uh, back a little bit. <laughs> Where did you start in music and what has been your educational journey? Let me see. I guess my musical journey started in the third grade when I began piano lessons with my mom. She instructed all five of us children uh, on the piano. And in the sixth grade, I started playing, actually in the fifth grade, started playing in the school band, a small town in Illinois where band was really a big deal. Mm -hmm. I remember auditioning for the different instruments. We tried them out and uh, the band director looked at me and I had a big gap in my two front teeth. And he said, I think you're probably going to need braces. You'd probably better play something with a large mouthpiece. So he was steering me to the trombone. Oh, that's the story. <laughs> and, and later on, it dawned on me that my teeth had nothing to do with it. He just probably needed a trombone player in the band and yeah. used that as a as an argument. But anyway, I started playing trombone when I was uh, a junior in high school. I got asked to audition for a little 
uh, it was a pop band. Uh, it was a Motown band, actually. Oh. It was Motown hits back then. Yeah. And uh, so I played the audition. And after the audition, uh, the guys uh, came on and said, well, you play okay, but your dad has that van. And so I think I got in the va- in the band because my dad had this Volkswagen van and they needed somebody to haul equipment. So, uh, uh, but anyway, I, I, uh, I loved playing in that band. It was a garage band, but we did, uh, play in public a couple of times. And, uh, when, uh, when I went to college, I thought, well, yeah, I'll take trombone lessons and maybe I'll get to be in a better band. Um, and so, uh, uh, I started taking trombone lessons at the University of Missouri, St. Louis. My teacher was the principal trombone player with the St. Louis Symphony. And of course, the school was subsidizing these lessons. These are one-on-one private lessons. And like all universities, uh, the school pays part of that lesson fee. And uh, after the end of the first year, they said, if you want to keep taking lessons, you'll need to be a music major. Hmm. And I said, okay, I'll be one. So absolutely no real thought uh, or anything. I just knew I loved playing music and I enjoyed playing in um, from then on, I played in the school band, the orchestra, brass quintet, the brass choir, a jazz ensemble. And I also played in community groups. And uh, so I was very musically active as an undergraduate and really enjoyed that. And it didn't really dawn on me until my fifth year of college that I was going to graduate with a music education degree um, and uh, that I was preparing to be a teacher of music. So I wasn't quite ready to teach when I graduated. So I worked as a freelance musician for a year and then went to North Texas, earned a master's degree. And then I thought, well, now I've got two degrees in music education. I guess I better teach. So I took a a public school teaching job in a South Central Missouri school district, very rural, and where I had to do pretty much everything. Uh, I I did the band. And for a while, I also did the school chorus. And it was a great experience. And then I thought, well, I would rather teach teachers of music, teach people how to teach. So I went back to school at Indiana University, uh, earned a doctorate in music education, took a job at Shorter University uh, in Rome, Georgia, where I taught for 25 years. And when I got to Rome, Georgia, I realized there was no community band, uh, concert band in the community. So I started one that was in 1987. And through that concert band, I met a lot of the area band directors and we all had a similar experience. We all played jazz band and concert band in college and we really enjoyed it and we missed it. So in 1988, I formed the Clock Tower Jazz Ensemble with band directors from the area. Both of those groups still exist. So I'm still directing the Northwest Georgia Winds and the Clock Tower Jazz Ensemble. Those groups need music to play and you can buy music, but sometimes I would want to do a, a song or some kind of a piece that wasn't commercially available. So I started writing music and arranging for the band. And uh, it's, I think it's really important as, as a composer arranger that you can hear your music played live by real musicians. So I had the perfect laboratory. I had a concert band and I had a jazz band. And then when my wife and I uh, started playing this Celtic group, I did the arrangements for that group. So everything that I was writing, 
I could hear musicians play within a week or two. So it was, it was a wonderful thing. And uh, I don't know that I started with any special talent for it, but that I've done a lot of it over the years. I've gotten better as, as time has gone on. All right. That's a great place to start. I uh, have a lot of questions here. Just one thing, the North Georgia Wins, is there a reason that it's in capitals, the Wins? No, uh, it's just it's just the way I got in the habit of writing it. Okay. Northwest Georgia Wins. Um, a funny story, when, when we first started out with the Northwest Georgia Wins, I made a really nice poster for our very first concert. And uh, I, wanted, I wanted real eye-catching font. So I picked this font that made the D and wins look like an O. Mm-hmm. You got to think about that for a minute. So people thought the concert was by the Northwest Georgia Winos. And, uh, and, uh, so uh, people thought, my gosh, they're really good for a bunch of winos. Um, but uh, anyway, so we fixed the font and overcame that, that, uh, that startup. And we've been going ever since. We'll, we're starting our 37th year now. Oh wow! So the uh, you're also in the Chamber Players of the South. What is what is that group? Is that in round two? Yes, it is, and uh, it it's not real active since COVID, um, or even for a couple of years before COVID. Um, Rome uh, has a nice uh, symphony orchestra, the Rome Symphony Orchestra, but there was no real outlet for serious musicians to play chamber music, classical chamber music. So I started the Chamber Players of the South to give musicians that opportunity. And so we did a number of concerts. Usually the concerts were by, you know, anywhere from seven to 10, 12 musicians. And we would do chamber music, basically. Well, I'm wondering how many hours you have in a day. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. I appreciate what you said about having the music performed. And that's kind of a, since this is a program about creativity more than any one particular art form, I, I'm, I'm a, I've written some plays and you really can't say you've written a play until you've watched people do it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, and find out what works, what doesn't work, the tempo, yeah. the, you know, even with playwriting, you can't. You have to be sure your lines are not too long. The sentences are not too long. Right. Things like that. So, uh, yeah, you, in performing arts, you have to hear them them done. When did when did you first start getting them published, though, so that they were accessible to other other people? Um, I've well, um, the publication process mm-hmm. has been a real. It's a real challenge. Yes. Um, you you know what the way it used to work is you would you would send a manuscript to a publisher. And most of these publishers have their own in-house stable of arrangers. Mm-hmm. So they don't they don't they're not really looking for unsolicited manuscripts. Um, but if you can get a publisher to look at your piece, you know, that process takes six months to a year. Mm-hmm. And then usually you get a rejection letter. They'll say, oh, we have a piece like that already in our catalog or, or we have arrangers working on that kind of piece or that doesn't suit our needs. And then you have to send it to another publisher. And it's kind of bad form to send the same piece to more than one publisher at the same time. 
just on the very unlikely chance that both would accept it, um, then you'd be in a, in a pickle. So, you know, so you wait six months, you get a rejection, you send it to another publisher, you wait six months to a year, you get a rejection, you send it to another. And uh, I just got frustrated with that process. And so I just kept writing music and accumulating this, this backlog of pieces. Two or three years ago, I found a, um, a program that's run by the J.W. Pepper Company. J.W. Pepper is a, uh, a selling website. Um, they sell music of all different publishers and music of all types. Mm-hmm. And they started this program called MyScore, where for a one-time fee of $100, you buy into the program, and then they will publish for you and put it on their catalog, which is available worldwide. Um, any piece that's in the public domain or original. So using that program, uh, I've published I don't know, 40 or 50 pieces, uh, mostly for concert band. And those pieces are all available on the jwpepper.com catalog. Mm-hmm. And so now they're getting worldwide distribution. And the royalty situation is a whole lot more generous than the typical publishers. So it's really, really been a great program. And, uh, you know, I, I get a royalty check every three months for the pieces that are sold. And every three months, uh, my royalties have been going up. So more and more people are getting aware that I'm out there and uh-huh. starting to sell pieces in Europe and other places. So it, that's, it's really exciting. Well, that's interesting because the same, you know, the same thing is happens in, in, creative writing or you know there are outlets where you can uh, do that and a lot of people even people who have been published and have done rather well have decided to go that route as well because the publishing in you know novel publishing etc has gotten you know it's so slow and there's it's very gate kept and people just want to get their material out there where it can be a service to people and they can make money you know, you're you're ha- obviously have a passion for concert bands and education and uh, educators in music, and th- they want to have a, a wider variety to choose from. So, right. yeah, the internet, <laughs> the internet in that regard for creative purposes has been been fabulous. You know, yeah. So, uh, um, I I found that actually well well before I found this my score program. Um, I started my own publishing company um, and I had a website and it was set up so that I could sell my pieces through my own website. It was called Bag of Winds Press. It actually still exists. And I found that publishing music is actually easy. Um, you just, you know, uh, put it out on the website. The difficult thing is distribution and and getting getting people to know that your website even exists so uh, bagwins.com was was you know was out there for years but nobody knew to go there um so the advantage of this my score program is that it's attached to jwpepper.com which people go to all over the world to buy their sheet music they will there's a little icon you can click on and hear the piece and another icon you can click on to see the score so that band directors know what they're buying. And that's that's been a huge, a huge asset. Also, they take care of all of the 
duplication, the folding, the shipping, the billing, all of that. And I just sit back and get a, get a royalty check. So I used to have to do all that myself when I would get a sale through bag of women's.com. Right. You know, I would have to do all of the preparation and the mailing and the sh- billing and it, it was, it was just not worth it. Well, that's, those are some great resources for um, music educators. And this is a question. I'm not a musician myself. I've been in choirs. That's about it. Yeah. I, t- I took some lessons, but I often have a question how a musician chooses their primary instrument. You, you were primarily a trombonist, right? And, was. and you were, I'm assuming that was, did you do a recital in college? On I did, yeah. yeah. Huh? What drew you to the trombone? I think actually, well, as I mentioned, the band director pushed me in that direction, but I, I embraced the trombone partly because as I watched the band play, my brother, two years older than me, was in the band. There was a guy that played trombone. And he just looked like a cool guy. Uh, you know, he's moving that slide back and forth and he's relaxed. And, you know, I think different personalities may be drawn to different instruments. There are actually scientific studies about about them. You know, trombone players tend to be gregarious. Uh, they tend to be team players. Because, you know, you know, to be a trombone player means in most cases, you're going to be part of a section or you're going to be part of an ensemble. Mm-hmm. And uh, that all all really appealed to me. And uh, so I really enjoyed playing trombone. And I, I played up until a couple of years ago. I haven't been very active on trombone the last few years since basically since COVID. Uh, but early on. I thought, well, I need a fun instrument. I need an instrument that I can just not have to work at or not have to try to maintain a, a professional level on. But just an instrument I can pick up and play for fun. And for me, that was the electric bass. Uh-huh. Um, and the electric bass was an easy instrument to pick up. I just started playing along with records. That was back in college, I think. Mm-hmm. So I've been playing bass for 50 years. And, oh, water, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and, and and bass continues to be just a fun instrument to pick up and play. And 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 really, piano. I really enjoy sitting down to play the piano. I'm not all that good, but I love to be able to play. You know, the melody and the chords, and and you know, the piano is such a complete instrument. Well, along the way, I picked up guitar. I can kind of strum along on a guitar. And, you know. Yes. It so, really helps when you you know what an instrument is supposed to sound like. Wow. Um, so you have the concept in your head of, of you know, well, on trombone, what does a professional trombone sound like? And then you try to make what comes out of your instrument match what's in your head. And to me, that was a big breakthrough. Not just blow air through a horn and accept whatever you get out of it, but, but have a concept first. What do I want to sound like? Um, and then, and then work to make that happen. Mm-hmm. So along with the composing and the performance, though, conducting is a big, big part of your life. And so I, I'm just, that, that fascinates me, con- uh, conductors and what they do. <laughs> I just like to watch them. So what is your story about becoming more involved in conducting? Was that basically part of your job, early jobs? With that, it was um, 
conducting is part of your training as an undergraduate music education major. Everyone takes one or two semesters of conducting lessons. And I had a really good conducting teacher as an undergraduate. And then you conduct, uh, you know, when you're a high school band director, you conduct. And there are different levels of conducting. Many people see conductors do the little beat patterns. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's like level one. Yes. Okay. Uh, and as a good conductor, those beat patterns, keeping the beat for the band, that needs to be on automatic. Um, you need to be able to do those hand gestures and read the newspaper at the same time. That needs to be on automatic because as a conductor, your attention, your focus has to be not on what you're doing with your hands, but has to be on what you hear. What needs to be fixed? What, how can you make this more musical? And so as I'm listening to my group in rehearsal, I'm always listening for opportunities for musical expression. There's a big difference between playing notes like this. Da, 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 da. Or playing notes like this. Same notes. One has shape and form and direction, and it becomes more musical and more expressive. And so it's not a matter of playing the right notes at the right time. That's a given. That that has to be your baseline. But once you have that in hand, then it's a matter of making those notes expressive so that the notes tell a story. And the conductor's job is to coordinate all of that for the members of the ensemble so that everybody shapes phrases in the same way. Um, yeah. The conductor in a large ensemble Somebody has to make those choices. It, it would be too unwieldy to run a, a large band like a democracy where everybody has input and everybody votes. And how do we want this to go? Somebody has to make those decisions. No discussion. Yeah, it's, it just it just would be too unwieldy, too time consuming. Uh, in a small group, you don't need a conductor if you have four five, six musicians, mm-hmm. because then you can each have a little input. You can discuss things. But the bigger the group goes, the more somebody has to call the shots. <laughs> yeah, I think that would be pretty chaotic. I uh, I noticed a lot of the photos of you on the Internet show you in what is commonly known as kilts. I'm uh, not sure that's really the technical. That is good. That's it. A kilt. Yeah. So what is that about? <laughs> um, with the Northwest Georgia winds. I don't know, somewhere around our 10th year, maybe in the mid, late 90s, um, we started doing theme concerts. We would pick a theme, um, the history of flight. We did a concert on the history of flight. We did a pirate concert. We did a you know, music of Greece in the Olympics concert. We did it in 96 when the Olympics came to Atlanta. Somewhere around 2000, I thought, well, let's do a concert and we'll call it Across the Big Pond. And we'll do music of England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. The concert was a huge success. As it turns out, we had one guy in the band who had just learned to play a bagpipes. And so he could play Amazing Grace was all he could play. But he marched in uh, into the concert hall playing Amazing Grace and the crowd went nuts. They just loved it. So they, well, we need to do this again. So the next year we did Across the Big Pond 2. 
And we've been doing them ever since. So every year now we do this concert. It's kind of morphed into a concert of Celtic music mm-hmm. where we focus primarily on the music of Scotland, Ireland and Wales. Mm-hmm. Um, in the second or third across the Big Pond concert, I invited a bagpipes band up from Atlanta. There's the John Moore Macintosh Pipes and Drums Band. There were, at that time, I think there were like seven bagpipers and five drummers. And they came up and they not only blew all of us away, but the, and the audience loved it, but they loved it because I arranged a piece of music that the bagpipes could play with us. Mm-hmm. Music for concert band and bagpipes. So they became our annual guest uh, and they've been playing with this for over 20 years. And to just kind of get in the spirit of things, when we do that Celtic concert, I wear a kill. And so I don't wear that regularly. Uh, That's not my street attire. Okay. You know, not for all performances either. No, no, it's just once a year. And by the way, for people who don't know, the kilt is not daily attire, even in Scotland. They wear kilts over there like we wear tuxedos. Mm-hmm. So it's formal dress attire for special occasions. So Right. So you're, in your bio, you mentioned that you performed uh, with your wife in the Kaylee Celtic Ensemble. Is that a separate group? Then It is. Okay. It's a five-piece group. Uh, it's been inactive since COVID again, but we, we performed together for some 15 years. And it was partly an outgrowth of this across the Big Pond concert. Um, my wife and I took a trip to uh, Scotland and Ireland. Actually, we made several trips, but we we took our first trip to kind of be able to go to places we were performing about. Mm-hmm. And my wife had met some friends who lived in Dalton, actually. And so uh, the Kaylee Celtic Ensemble was based in Dalton, Dalton, Georgia, which mm-hmm. is, I don't know what, 40, 50 miles north of Rome. Yeah. Um, and we did school shows. We did performances at the Dalton Creative Arts Guild. We performed for festivals and just in concert. And so I did arrangements for that group. We were not a pub band. We were not, you know, an improvising traditional band. We were all classically trained musicians. So I would write out, you know, the arrangements for violin, for harp and flute, okay. uh, for guitar, bass. Bowerin or drums. So that was that was really fun. We played school concerts for well over 10,000 kids. Uh, so we do traditional Irish jigs and reels, but we also do some popular songs, things like that. It was it was really fun. You know, you've mentioned several times here in the, about COVID <laughs> and we could probably have a big discussion about COVID and uh, its impact on the performing arts and everything, you know, that's, I'll leave that to maybe another discussion, but uh, we don't really define creativity here. Uh, we, we talk more about what people do who are creative. So what insights do you have about creativity since especially your dissertation was about that in children? Mm-hmm. For me, there are different levels of creativity. And and as I work in music, I'm, I'm very aware of those different levels. One level of writing music is just the level of transcription, mm-hmm. where you take a piece of music written for some instrument and just 
rewrite the exact same notes, same rhythms for a different instrument. Okay. So maybe you take a piano piece and rewrite it for a brass quartet, something like that. That's transcription. Uh, the next, and there's very little creativity in that. It's just, that's, that's kind of a mechanical process. The level of arranging involves a little more creativity. Then you take those notes and maybe you'll add a counter melody. You'll change the rhythms. Maybe you'll modulate to different keys. You'll change instruments from brass to woodwinds to strings to, you'll manipulate the piece in some kind of creative way. And there's kind of a continuum of creative levels, even within the category of arranging. Mm-hmm. Um, the arrangement can be fairly simple or it can be really quite complex. Uh, and then the next level after that is composition, uh, where you, where you write completely original melodies, chords, harmonies, musical combinations, and, and so on. I find as I, as I compose music and probably 90% of what I do are arrangements, 10% or maybe original compositions. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I, I write for a purpose. If I need a piece of music for an occasion, then I'll, I'll arrange. But for me, the composition process, it's almost like sculpting. It's you start with a blank sheet of paper, which is akin to a block of clay. Um, and then you start gradually shaping it. Um, you, you peel away the stuff you don't need and you move the stuff you do need to certain areas. And once I get kind of a basic shape of a piece, then the tweaking process begins. Mm-hmm. And for me, the tweaking process, maybe it's akin to rewriting in, uh, in, in, in the, in, um, for me, that's, that's as big of a process as the actual writing in the first place. I spend as much time tweaking as I do composing until I get the piece exactly the way I want it. Um, so it's, it's a matter of, when we compose, we listen differently than audiences listen. You know, audiences listen kind of to the global effect, the big effect. Mm-hmm. Well, do they like it or not? Can you dance to it? You know, or whatever. Uh, but composers and musicians have to listen for detail. We listen to every millisecond. Um, and, uh, you know, and in the tweaking process, I'm, I'm focused on like I say, every every split second of the piece of music till I get that little split second exactly right. When I first started composing just on a piano with a sheet of paper, I had just gotten married and I would I would work on like one measure for hours, uh, you know, one little three second snippet of music for hours until my wife would say, oh, can't you work on something else? So I'd go to another measure and work on it. I can see where that would get your holes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, get your head. Yeah. Yeah. Finally, because, because I mean, that's what it takes is that kind of attention to detail. Yes. yes. In the early days, I would let something slide. You know, if, if I was writing a piece, I'd get to a section that didn't quite sound right, but I didn't know how to fix it. I would just give up and I'd say, well, the musicians will take care of that. They'll, they'll play it in a way that'll make it work. And, but then when we get into rehearsal, those were always the moments that didn't work. 
And, and I realized I've just got to be patient and stick with it until I'm completely satisfied. And of course, nowadays, you know, I, I write on the computer. Um, I have a piano keyboard attached to my computer so I can play on the piano keyboard and it puts it onto the computer screen in musical notation. And then I can man- manipulate it that way. Um, and I can hit a play button and the computer will play it. But that just gives me an approximate idea of what it sounds like. It's very helpful, but it's not the same as real musicians playing that. Yeah. You have to kind of use your imagination and imagine what, because you're not with the band. I'm not writing just music. I'm writing for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've got to, I've got to be aware of how human beings are going to interact with those notes, how they're going to play them, how they're going to shape them, how they're going to phrase them. And then also the people in the audience, how are they going to respond? How are they going to react? Because some composers just write for themselves, but I, I'm not like that. I, I need to write for an audience. I want people to want to hear my piece twice. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, I, I, so, yeah, you know, um, this opens up a whole other, you know, more so to speak about AI and generative and all that kind of thing that, um, because not that we're going to talk about music being created by a computer, but, but the fact that the, the way it sounds as played back to you by your computer is not, it's not real in a sense yeah. it's not the performance it's yeah it's just too mechanical it's there's no life to it yeah. um, and so e- human beings can add the, the 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 human element you know okay one more question what is your next performance uh, our next performance is october 24th which is a okay. tuesday night uh it's a free public concert by the northwest georgia winds 7 p.m. at the Rome City Auditorium, which is at 601 Broad Street, downtown Rome. And uh, we're celebrating the 100th anniversary of Disney. Oh my I don't know if people know, but Walt Disney started his company, the Disney Company, in 1923. Yeah. Um, so we're doing music uh, with some special guests, some marvelous singers, and a children's choir singing uh, with, uh, with the Northwest Georgia Winds. All right. I think I probably will have you back sometime. So there's a lot of things we need to get to today. But uh, I know you're a busy person. You probably have whole bunch of practices today and, and uh, things like that. Actually, today's a good day because uh, my computer's in the shop. And I, of course, I always, I love to talk about music. So. Oh, yes. So we've been talking with Dr. Sam Baltzer and... I really appreciate your time today. You're quite welcome. It's great to talk with you.